If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the 19th century onwards, waves of Irish migrants left their home to begin new lives elsewhere across the globe. From Britain and the United States to Australia, New Zealand and even Argentina. In his book, On Every Tide, historian Professor Sean Connolly explores the experiences of these Irish diaspora communities, and I spoke to him to find out more. Your book, On Every Tide, looks at the Irish diaspora. So that's the millions of Irish immigrants who left their home nation and began new lives and new communities elsewhere across the globe. I wonder if we could start with a bit of context, first of all. When did people first begin leaving Ireland in large numbers and where did they go? Well, strictly speaking, the history of Irish uh, emigration goes right back. I mean, it's a relatively small island on the periphery of Europe and people have always uh, had an incentive to go elsewhere. In the 18th century, there is a movement from uh, Ireland to the British colonies in uh, North America, but that's very culturally specific. It's mainly um, Presbyterians from Ulster. It's very much a, a subculture, if you like. I mean, mass migration from Ireland really gets going at the, um, at the end of the 18th century, and initially people are going no further than Great Britain. 
And by the 1830s, there's maybe three, four hundred thousand Irish men and women living in uh, England and Scotland. And some economic historians would argue that the British Industrial Revolution would never have got off the ground without those extra hands. Uh, from the 1820s, the Irish start going further afield, mainly to North America, but also to Australia uh, and to uh, New Zealand. Overall, between the 1820s and the 1960s, we're talking about roughly 8 million people emigrating. And that's from an island where the population at its peak in the 1840s was just over 8 million, and by the 20th century had fallen to 4 million. And I imagine quite a few of our listeners, maybe in America, as you say, maybe in Australia, might be listening and think, oh, this was my family. Um, I can trace my heritage back to Ireland. But is there an end point of this migration story? When does mass Irish migration drop off? Mass Irish migration beyond the British Isles really comes to an end uh, at the end of the 1920s. Well, Australia and New Zealand, it's much earlier. I mean, the boom in emigration to Australia and New Zealand um, is very important. I mean, roughly a quarter of the population uh, of Australia and New Zealand um, at the end of the 19th century have Irish ancestry. But uh, it gets going in a big way in the 1850s, and it comes to end in the 1890s when there's quite severe economic depression in uh, both Australia and New Zealand. Mass emigration to the United States really comes to an end with the Great Depression. The United States does start to bring in controls on emigration um, in the 1920s, but this is very racist in intent, really. They're trying to keep out what they see as undesirable immigrants, by what, which they mean Southern and Eastern Europeans. The Irish are regarded as Northern Europeans and have quite a generous quota. But then at the end of the 1920s, you get the Great Depression. One in four American workers is out of work. It's no longer attractive for immigrants. Equally important, Irish people already in the United States are no longer in a position to send money back to, to help uh, people to pay their passage to come and join them. And they can't provide the necessary guarantee that people who come to join them won't be a, a burden uh, on the economy. So from the end of the 1920s onwards, the Irish are still emigrating in very large numbers. Um, I mean, there's a particular peak in the 1950s when there's a real panic about depopulation. Um, but they, they're going no further than Great Britain. Uh, and then in the 1960s, Ireland abandons its um, ultra-nationalist protectionist policies, trying to, you know, to create an economy cut off from the outside world. It belatedly joins the post-war economic boom and emigration uh, very quickly declines. So, as you say, this is a huge amount of people and a very sizable proportion of the Irish population. So what were some of the motivations for people leaving Ireland? It's an old cliche, but historians of immigration talk about push and pull. Um, and push where people find conditions intolerable at home and pull when they see the prospect of, um, of better uh, opportunities elsewhere. And uh, in Ireland, as elsewhere, it's a mixture. Um, the people who first start going to America in the 1820s and 30s, they're not fleeing starvation or economic collapse at that stage, um, but they're realising there are better opportunities on the other side of the Atlantic. I mean, the first immigrants take a leap in the dark, but once they've gone and established themselves, they can write home with stories of how well they're doing. They can send money back to assist other people to join them. 
when new immigrants arrive, they have contacts who will help them get settled in the new environment. So that's emigration largely in search of a better life. Then, of course, during the famine of the 1840s, you know, people really are fleeing the real prospect of death by fever or starvation. They're fleeing complete economic collapse. Uh, and they are, in that sense, you know, refugees from a disaster. Uh, second half of the 19th century is more complicated because um, at one level, um, you know, living standards in Ireland are gradually rising. Um, but the reason they're rising is partly because so many people are emigrating. So if those people had stayed at home, nobody would have starved, but large numbers of people would not have had the prospect of any sort of a decent life. So do you see those people as economic migrants looking for a better life, or do you see them as people leaving because they have no choice? It's an interesting blurring of the boundaries there, isn't there, between this distinction that's often made between refugees and economic migrants? Uh, yeah, very much. I mean, that's um, one of the things that um, I became very aware of, that uh, so much of the rhetoric about modern emigration uh, talks about refugees and economic migrants. But imagine, uh, say you are growing up on a small farm in Tipperary and your one son is going to inherit the family farm and that will allow him to marry and set up his own household. Um, one daughter would be provided with the sort of dowry. Now the rest, the other brothers and sisters, um, they could stay in Ireland. I mean, as I said earlier, they won't starve. Their life would be as a bachelor uncle or a spinster aunt helping out in the family farm for a seat at the dinner table and a bit of pocket money. They would have no prospect of marrying or of becoming fully independent adult members of the society. Um, whereas by emigrating, they can do these things. So, uh, as I say, do you see these people as economic migrants or do you see them as people whose only chance of a meaningful life uh, is to emigrate? Obviously, we're talking about millions of individuals here over a really big span of time. But are there any kind of defining features of the experience of emigration for people who undertook it? Were there any recurring themes about how people found the process? I'm thinking here particularly of the first stage of emigration, the passage over and the arrival in a new place. The journey um, has been mythologised a lot. I mean, people talk about coffin ships and about um, huge numbers of people dying on the transatlantic journey. I mean, first of all, the word coffin ship wasn't being used in the 1840s in the era of the famine, the era people talk about. There is one horrendous year uh, in 1847 when probably 10 to 15 percent of emigrants die of um, either on board ship or soon after disembarking. But that's because there's an epidemic of typhus and they bring the disease onto the ships with them. Normally, roughly 98 percent of people who make the journey or, or more will arrive alive at the other end. Um, it's not particularly dangerous. Uh, in the first half of the 19th century, it is, it is harrowing. You're at sea for six or seven weeks. And initially, the trade in emigrants is well, it's commercial trade, and it's very much a byproduct of the growing international economy. In other words, you have ships that are there to carry goods. And one of the key things that enables the Irish to go to North America is that the goods that are coming from North America uh, sailing um, eastwards, are things like cotton and timber, are much bulkier than the goods that travel in the other direction, things like light manufactured items. So the ships 
uh, coming back uh, have lots of extra space. So they rig up bunks in large open sleeping compartments and just pack the immigrants in. And there's not a great deal of um, control or supervision at that stage on how many people you cram into a ship. So it is an arduous journey, uh, but uh, it is one that most people survive. And as I said earlier, once the first wave of immigrants is gone, there is a lot of chain migration. People go to where they have friends or relatives. And particularly after the famine, I mean, the, the disaster of the famine means something like one and a half million people emigrating uh, in the space of just a few years. And that means that in the second half of the 19th century, very few people growing up in Ireland don't have a former neighbour or a cousin or another relative somewhere in Chicago or Philadelphia or wherever who will be a point of contact when they arrive. It's no longer a leap in the dark. So when Irish immigrants generally arrived, like you say, in Canada, in Australia, wherever it might be, logistically, what kind of networks were there to help them establish lives there? Certainly in the second half of the 19th century, they would have come with um, assistance. Somebody will have probably sent either money or a prepaid ticket. And then when they arrive, there will be um, people to help them to find accommodation and to uh, to find work. I mean, the Irish uh, is, don't live in ghettos. There are very few neighbourhoods that are exclusively Irish. Uh, and you will find Irish people living in all sorts of places. But there are Irish neighbourhoods, you know, neighbourhoods where a large portion of the population are Irish, where the local shopkeepers are Irish, where the local saloons are Irish, um, where the local police on the beat are Irish. Uh, and you, know, you are arriving um, in a, a ready-made community, if you like. I'm really intrigued by these communities, because to what extent did Irish migrant communities try and hold on to a sense of an Irish identity? And to what extent did they you know, assimilate into the, into the nations that they arrived in? The forms that people's Irishness take when they emigrate vary enormously, depending where they're going. I mean, we all have a stereotype of the Irish emigrant. And we're normally thinking about a blue-collar worker in the United States who is Catholic and a strong supporter of the Democratic Party and a strong supporter of militant Irish republicanism. And that stereotype you know, does reflect a truth in terms of the United States. Uh, but when you go, for example, to Australia or to New Zealand, the, um, the sense of Irishness is very different. I mean, people are still aware of their Irish um, identity. Um, they are still Catholic, but uh, their attitudes to, for example, the politics of the homeland are very different. The uh, Irish uh, Americans in the United States tend to support militant movements like the Fenians. So you actually get um, attempts to invade Canada from North America by groups of armed Irish nationalists in the 1860s. The Canadian Irish, on the other hand, Catholic as well as Protestant, um, have very little interest in militant nationalism. Um, they mainly support home rule for Ireland, you know, limited self-government, because that's what Canada has. And the same is true of the Irish in Australia or New Zealand. They generally support moderate Irish nationalism looking for self-government. They have very little interest in militant Irish nationalism. And what you've got there, I think, is a difference. I mean, you asked earlier about the immigrant experience. When the Irish arrive in the United States, they're arriving in a mature economy. There's already a well-established social hierarchy. And crucially, there is an American, native-born, white working class who don't take kindly to intruders. 
Um, so the Irish come in very much at the bottom. They're in the classic position of um, emigrants as a subordinate group, doing the work nobody else wants to do, and meeting with a lot of hostility. Canada, Australia, New Zealand are different. The Irish start to arrive um, as these colonies are taking shape. They arrive in territories that are just starting to be constructed. And they can see themselves, therefore, as co-creators of these new societies. There is no rigid social hierarchy where they are fated to be slotted in at the bottom. These societies are more open uh, and more fluid. And uh, as they mature and develop, the Irish can feel, well, we played our part in the building of these societies. And so you get, you know, um, among the Irish Australians, Irish New Zealanders, um, quite a strong sense of imperial pride that um, they have helped to create a thriving British um, colony. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Now, at this point in the early 20th century, the Irish are still not going to be received in the upper levels of WASP society, uh, in the golf clubs or at the, in the dinner parties of the really rich and powerful. Uh, they are more like a filling in a sandwich uh, between the WASP elite and the immigrant population. But for that, you know, rapidly increasing new immigrant population, the Irish are very much the, the gatekeepers to the new world. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Those differences are very intriguing. And I did want to ask you about some of those hostilities and the challenges that Irish emigrants faced, especially 
as you say, in, in America. And I think it's probably fair to say in Britain too. What were some of the stereotypes that were perpetuated about Irish immigrants? Uh, Anti-Irish feeling uh, is strongest and um, most threatening, certainly in the United States and in Great Britain. And what you get um, in terms of complaints about the Irish are the complaints you continue with dreary familiarity to get about immigrants in every subsequent period right up to the present day. They don't assimilate. um, uh, They don't uh, uh, share the cultural values of the host society. They're drunken, they're disorderly, um, they're uh, inclined to criminality. Uh, And that's certainly the stereotype you get of the Irish um, in uh, America, particularly in the 1840s and 50s, uh, and also uh, in Great Britain. Uh, there's a degree of anti-Irish feeling in um, in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, a lot of policymakers, when they set up assisted immigration schemes, they would love to have uh, sturdy English uh, farmers and rosy-cheeked uh, Scottish dairymaids. The rural um, labouring classes of England and Scotland are not particularly keen on emigrating to what they see as a former dumping ground for uh, criminals, whereas the Irish are anxious to go, unwilling to go. So, like it or not, the Irish are what you get. So, yes, you get complaints, but nevertheless, they are what is available in societies that are are desperate for labour. The anti-Irish feeling uh, in the United States, um, as I say, reaches a peak in the 1840s and 50s with what is called the the Know-Nothing Movement. It was formerly the American Party, but its members were told, if you're asked anything about the affairs of the party, say, I know nothing. So it became the Know-Nothing Movement. Interestingly, contrary to what's often claimed, they were not racist in their attitude. They didn't say that the Irish could never fit into American society. They just said it would take them a long time to acclimatize. So what they wanted was, for example, that immigrants would not be allowed to vote until they'd been resident in the country for 21 years. And they didn't want uh, Irish uh, men employed in in, uh, the police force, for example, or in other positions of trust. What then happens, of course, at the end of the 19th century is that new waves of immigrants start to arrive from southern and eastern Europe. Um, And so they become the bottom layer of society and the Irish are sort of promoted. And of course, by that time as well, the Irish have begun to find more of a foothold, uh, particularly in American society. In England or in England and Scotland, Irish upward mobility is relatively slow. Um, And I think that's partly because of the much stronger trade union structures, which make it very difficult for outsiders to enter into skilled labor. In America, by the late 19th century, the Irish uh, are moving into more um, skilled and semi-skilled work and are no longer economically the bottom layer of the society. And then with the arrival of Italians, Poles, Ukrainians and so on, all of whom are manifestly far more alien than the Irish who've been there for half a century, the Irish become promoted into a more acceptable group. And as you say, the Irish become promoted in your words. How does the nature of Irish immigrant communities change over the generations? Does that sense of an Irish identity get lessened? Does it get diluted over the generations? Um, Talking about Irish identity, particularly in the United States, is very tricky because you tend to find what you're looking for. 
a lot of people who want to look for the soul of Irish America will look in bars in South Boston, for example, or at an organization like the Ancient Order of Hibernians. Um, and will, you will end up with you know, a self-defined Irish community, which isn't necessarily uh, the same thing um, as the actual um, total population of Irish descent. And the most vivid uh, um, example of this is, of course, in the area of religion. We tend to think of Irish Americans as Catholic. But um, surveys in the 1980s where you asked a whole sample of people who saw themselves as being of Irish descent, their religion, um, among, um, a small majority were in fact Protestant. Now, that's not actually as surprising as it sounds, because as I mentioned earlier, you do start to get an emigration from Protestant Ulster way back in the early 18th century. So the family trees of these early Protestant immigrants have a lot more time to put out branches than people who arrive in, say, the 1870s or the 1880s. In addition, the minority of Catholic immigrants who did arrive in the 18th century or the very early 19th century found a Catholic church that wasn't yet really geared up to receive them, and many of them just drift off into, if they're, if they're keen on church going, they have no choice but to drift off into other denominations. And there's a fascinating um, sociological study of Newburyport in Massachusetts in the 1930s, which makes this point explicitly, that um, if you look at um, the people of Irish descent in Newburyport, in terms of their speech, their dress, their how they spend their leisure time, everything else, they're indistinguishable from the rest of the white American population. And the Protestants have just become part of the mainstream um, population. The Catholics, on the other hand, still are very much a separate community because particularly of their Catholicism, uh, because the Catholic Church involves not just religious services, but crucially schools as well. As you say, a lot of this is very difficult to entangle. It's quite intangible. But what would you say are some of the impacts that we can see and we can trace that Irish immigrants have had on the communities that they've arrived into? Uh, as I say, when the Irish first arrive, they very much take on the typical role of an immigrant underclass. They don't come with sk great skills, they don't come with capital, but they do come with very considerable advantages. In the first place, they're English-speaking, which gives them, in all of the major places they emigrate to, uh, a great advantage over, for example, uh, later uh, immigrants like Poles or Italians or whatever. In addition, they bring with them a degree of political experience. They are familiar with the institutions of um, uh, British-style administrative and legal and political structures, which is what they've known at home and what they mainly encounter. And from the 1820s onwards in Ireland, in comparison to um, continental Europe, you have got the beginnings of a, a lively development of popular politics, people being encouraged to see elections, for example, as a way of improving their condition, thanks to organisers like Daniel O'Connell. So when the Irish arrive, they are very well placed to begin asserting themselves. And by the uh, second half of the 19th century, uh, the Irish, um, particularly in but not exclusively in the United States, uh, are becoming very well entrenched in local urban politics particularly. And um, through that, disproportionately um, powerful in, in, in employment as policemen, uh, as municipal workers and so on. 
they also very early become a dominant force in trade unions. So there's a, a social reformer, Emily Balch, writing in 1910, and she makes the point, let's say that you're a Polish immigrant arriving in New York in 1910. You, you move into a working class neighborhood. And the local police on the beat are Irish. The owner of the local saloon, the barman local saloon, is Irish. Um, the, um, if, if you seek to join a trade union, the local um, uh, trade union organiser is Irish. The local government uh, officials you encounter will probably be Irish. If you're Catholic, the priest will probably be Irish, and so will the teachers in the local school. And um, that, uh, as she says, the immigrant could be forgiven for thinking that you know, the Irish are the gateway to America. Now, at this point in the early 20th century, the Irish are still not going to be received in the upper levels of WASP society, uh, in the golf clubs or at the, in the dinner parties of the really rich and powerful. Uh, they are more like a filling in a sandwich uh, between the WASP elite and the immigrant population. But for that you know, rapidly increasing new immigrant population, the Irish are very much the, the gatekeepers to the new world. And if you had to pick one country where you think Irish immigration had the biggest impact, what would you choose? That's a very interesting question because numerically um, the Irish in the United States are increasingly swamped by the huge numbers coming in from uh, southern and eastern Europe from the 1880s onwards. But um, it's in America in particular that they become a, a highly visible group uh, because of their prominence in certain distinctive areas of American society. In Australia and New Zealand, um, numerically, the Irish are actually a bigger um, slice of the population, up to a quarter, but um, they are more integrated and therefore that much less visible. Um, they, they don't form a, a power block in quite the same way. You've spoken about North America, Australia, New Zealand primarily, but were there any more unexpected locations that got significant Irish communities? There are small Irish communities elsewhere, for example, in South Africa, but the most unexpected one and the most intriguing in many ways is Argentina, um, where st starting in the 1820s, um, you get an organized migration of Irish people to Argentina. It's a couple of enterprising businessmen with connections in Ireland uh, looking for workers, essentially, uh, in the developing Argentinian beef trade and cattle industry. And between the 1820s and the 1870s, you get a steady stream of Irish uh, migrants uh, to Argentina. It's very hard to get precise numbers. We're, we're probably talking about something like, say, 30,000 or thereabouts. And what's fascinating about these immigrants is two things. First of all, they come from a very specific part of Ireland, from the, the Midland counties of Longford and Westmeath. Um, and that is, of course, again, uh, chain migration. Argentina is a long way away, and most people in Ireland have never heard of it. So it, it's a it's a very particular slice of Ireland planted in Spanish America, and the ethnic uh, identity of these people is interesting. In the nineteenth century, um, Argentina is never a colony; it's an independent state, but it is very much dominated by British business. The British control its banks and its railways, and a great deal of its commerce. Some people would call it an informal co uh, colony. So there's a large expatriate British community. And the Irish initially 
place themselves within that community. They don't intermarry with the local um, uh, Latin American population. Most of them don't even bother to learn Spanish. They have a newspaper, the Southern Reporter, um, which is printed in English and which carries news from the Irish Midlands, uh, from the places these people came from. It's, it's very much an inward-looking enclave. Then everything changes in the 20th century with the rise of Argentinian nationalism and increasingly strong anti-British feeling in Argentina, a feeling that the country must free itself of these economic shackles. The Irish respond by quietly distancing themselves from the British population and um, adopting um, Spanish uh, manners and just redefine themselves as Spanish Argentinians. But then in the last 20, 30 years, they've begun to rediscover their Irishness and celebrate St. Patrick's Day to, um, to, to see themselves once again as an Irish expatriate population um, uh, it, uh, at a time when Irishness has become newly fashionable. So it's a striking example of several things, of the, enterprise, the enterprising character of Irish people that when the opportunity does arise for very particular circumstances of going to this strange, distant, large unknown location, they are willing to go. Um, the importance of chain migration, emigrants follow in the footsteps of other emigrants. And then the flexibility of ideas of identity, that people define and redefine their identity in response to changing circumstances. And, and what's the state of play with the Irish diaspora today? How would you characterise it? One of the things I had to try to deal with in the book is the um, remarkable um, reinvention of the Irish diaspora that's taken place in the last few decades. Because as I said earlier, mass emigration from Ireland beyond the British Isles, in other words, to anywhere other than Great Britain, uh, really comes to an end in the late 1920s. And you would therefore expect what they call ethnic fade. You would expect that over the decades that follow, um, there would be a gradual dilution of, um, of Irish identity. And, uh, and to, to some extent, that's the case. I mean, for example, in terms of intermarriage, you can see uh, a steady rise in the number of people of Irish descent marrying people of other ethnic uh, backgrounds. So in that sense, there is a degree of dilution. Um, uh, in other ways, too, I mean, if, if, if you talk about the United States, well, then all the pillars we think of as traditional pillars of Irish-American identity have weakened in the last 30, 40 years. One major driver of all this, of course, is suburbanization. Now, after the Second World War in particular, as people move out of the inner cities to the new suburbs, enabled by their newfound prosperity, well, that breaks up the tight-knit communities that had sustained an Irish identity. I mean, in schooling, for example, it, uh, as the Irish move out into suburbs, it's rare to have a sufficient concentration of Catholic children to have an exclusively Catholic school. So they're absorbed into the uh, mainstream uh, schooling system. So in all of those ways, what you think of as the traditional Irish identity, uh, Catholic, nationalist, working class, has been eroded. But what's also taken place is the rise of a new type of Irishness, which is marketed as an international brand, um, most spectacularly, of course, in the institution of the Irish pub, which is now pretty well ubiquitous. Um, I mean, you can be found you know, in major cities all over the world. There is even an Irish pub called Molly Malone's in Hiroshima, for example. In that sense, um, uh, Irishness has been redefined uh, as a brand to be marketed. 
Now, why has that happened? I, a lot, I think, again, to do with um, particularly English language. I mean, if you're looking at the, the post-war world, there is a growing hunger for what people think of as more authentic folk cultures, um, <clears throat> a reaction against bland consumerism. And um, if you're looking for that, Ireland is perfectly placed to deliver it because it delivers a, a, a colourful uh, history. Uh, it delivers um, cultural forms which are distinctive, but not too distinctive and not too different. They are still accessible. And of course, it's all available through the English language. And the paradox here, of course, is that the Irishness is now marketed as an international commodity is um, massively different to the Irishness of the actual diaspora. If you were to look at the Irish population scattered around the world in 1900, um, <clears throat> it was socially conservative, uh, mainly Catholic. Um, and certainly the bits that were insistent on their Irishness were mainly Catholic. Um, whereas you know, what's now marketed as Irishness is a sort of genial, convivial, gregarious sort of hedonism. I mean, if you had told the founders of the Irish state, people like Patrick Pierce, that the international symbol of the Ireland they were trying to create was going to be a pub, they would have been horrified. And that is a measure of you know, the distance between international Irishness as it's presented today and you know, the real world of the diaspora. It's an astonishing process of reinvention. That was Sean Connolly. His book, On Every Tide, The Making and Remaking of the Irish World, is out now published by Little Brown. One of the things Sean mentioned in this podcast was the often fractious relationship between Britain and Ireland. If you're interested in finding out more about that, then why not listen to BBC Radio 4's four-part documentary, The Anglo-Irish Century, with the historian Dermot Ferreter. You can find that now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.